This podcast is supported by Audible. To find out how you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible, check out audibletrial.com slash lead. Uh, this is Rita McGrath, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? Uh, well, my name is Rita McGrath, and I'm with the Columbia Business School, where I've been for unbelievably 20 years. And uh, while there, I work a lot with executives studying issues of innovation and strategy. And you have um, written extensively in both fields, especially excited for the newest release, because um, to me it kind of confirms something I've, I've felt and seen on the horizon as, um, as always sort of coming, if, if it ever um, wasn't true, at least now we know it's definitely not, and that's this idea of um, sustainable competitive advantage. It's it's not that it's not true, but you talk about it that it is the end of competitive advantage, specifically the end of sustainable competitive advantage. Um, tell me a little bit about what you mean when you say sustainable competitive advantage and why we're in a different phase and why we're at the end of it. Well, in strategy, historically, we've always been taught that advantages that are desirable last for a long time. And therefore, you build organizations that optimize around those advantages and you try to throw up entry barriers to protect your advantage. And the powerful people in your organization are the ones that built that advantage. And there's a whole series of things like that that go together with that concept. And as I worked with companies and as I did research, it just became clear to me that in more and more parts of our economy, there is no such thing. That instead, what we see are advantages that emerge and companies have the opportunity to exploit them and then competitors pile on or technology changes or customers get bored, and then you need to move to the next thing. So what that means is companies need to develop proficiency at doing two things that right now I think are fairly underdeveloped. The first is launching successive innovations so that you have a pipeline of competitive advantages that you can pursue. And the second is being able to disengage, so being able to pull resources out of things that are either fading or no longer represent growth opportunities so that you can fund your new growth opportunities. Now, and and I think that's a really interesting um, sort of dual mindset to have, especially the second one I find really hard to do. Uh, a lot of organizations have trouble doing it. But all of that is in the service of, and I love this term, you've, you've coined a new term, which is instead of competitive advantage or sustainable competitive advantage, the idea that our market position we can achieve and, and hold for a long time, you talk about this concept of transient advantage. Tell me a little bit about transient advantage, and then I want to talk about how we can, how organizations could have those dual mindsets of currently always seeking innovation and always being ready to drop products before they uh, cause too much damage. Well, transient advantage is the concept that if you wait too long in a particular competitive space, you're probably going to be at a disadvantage. And that you really want to be alert to new opportunities, you need to be able to seize them, but then you need to be able to move on. So it's this whole idea of being prepared to be very mobile in your strategy rather than sticking to one thing for a huge long period of time. Now that much being said, that doesn't mean you you change your strategy every day. I think you want to stick with broad strategic themes, but within those themes, you want to be uh, very adaptive to what's going on in the environment. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, part of it, part of it stems from this idea that you talk about in, in the book where as 
as a lot of companies, they find their their niche product, they find the right position, they establish their competitive advantage, and then it becomes this um, exploitive phase where we're just trying to get as much value out of a product we've invented um, or a service we brought to market for as long as we can. And, and what you argue is that I, that's great. As we're doing that, though, we cannot forget to be looking uh, on the horizon for new innovations. Is that first part of the two things organizations need to to do, which is building that innovation proficiency. How do we do that? How can we make sure that we're constantly refreshing our, our ability for a competitive advantage with innovation proficiency? Well, the whole point behind innovation proficiency is you want to do it as a system, right? You want to do it uh, peer regularly, and you want to do it with as much discipline as you would do any other thing that was important to your company, so quality or, or uh, supply chain or whatever. So I think there needs to be a number of building blocks in place. You want to have a governance process. You want to have a funding mechanism. You want to have very clear processes for when projects are going to be approved or when not. You want to have people whose job it is to go and look for new things, and you want to have sets of metrics that support the pursuit of innovation. What you'll find in most companies today is that the metrics in place actually work against innovation. So a profit and you know, product line manager will be reluctant to adopt an innovation because it's uncertain and it might hurt their numbers uh, in that quarter. And so it, it just creates a complete disincentive to do new things. So there's a set of practices that work together to create this innovation proficiency. And I think the good news is we know a lot about what makes that work. You know, I, I'm always stunned when I see companies that say, well, we want to get more innovative. And, you know, you, 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 and you go out and form a skunk works. And then people start from scratch, you know, <laughs> as though nobody understood a thing about how to do this, despite years and years and years of research. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And one of the things I, I find really, really interesting to me is, is this idea of a, a, a chief innovation officer. So in addition to the skunk works idea of you guys go over here and do something innovative, we also have this attempt to sort of legitimize the innovation process. But in, in doing so, I feel like sometimes we create these offices and that's where innovation comes from. You know, instead of freeing up uh, everyone in the organization and having a system where the entire organization is able to spot um, new ideas, et cetera. We, we kind of, uh, we assign one or two people and say, you're the innovation people. And, and of course, those people are always in a different office from the strategic planning people for some odd reason. Well, I think like any one of these chief whatever titles, um, you know, you can do it well and you can do it badly. Uh, in the book, I use the example of Brambles, which has a chief innovation officer, but his main job is a coordinative role. You know, he's not, he's not the, the guy that does the innovation. His job is to make sure innovative ideas get heard, that they get to the right place, that there's a process for funding them, and that they get um, integrated back into the business. So, you know, I think, it, I think it is a mistake to say all the innovation happens over there and the rest of you just execute. Um, the other observation I would make is, you know, companies don't need an infinite number of ideas, right? Um, because a truly big idea is going to take a huge amount of effort to actually implement. And so, you know, this sort of let a thousand flowers bloom thing, which you hear sometimes, um, you know, a thousand flowers never yet made a tree. And so I think you need to kind of think about what kind of innovation do you want and, and is it the right kind for your company? So one of my clients, for example, is Walters Kluwer, which is a big um, – well, they publish textbooks, they provide information, products, and so forth. And their attitude about innovation is, you know, our innovations are all singles and doubles. You know, there are no silver bullets at Walters Kluwer, you'll hear them say. Whereas a company like General Electric or Philips or a company like that would need something that has a fairly huge uh, footprint to be considered a success. 
Um, so I think the number of ideas you want to generate and how you handle them is also going to be a function of the kinds of markets in which you wish to compete. Very true. And you know, so uh, alongside of that, the idea of building this innovation proficiency is kind of a willingness of organizations to to drop products that even if they're in the, the peak of what looks like they're doing well, to sort of know when it's time for a certain product, a certain service to exit the stage. Uh, tell me a little bit about how I mean, organizations struggle with this, for sure. Um, how, how can they do a better job of it? Well, I think the first challenge is to admit that this could happen. <laughs> you know, in a lot of companies, even having that conversation is not acceptable. So if you, if you take something like the Walkman business at, at Sony, um, you know, they had MP3 players. They had everything that Apple has um, in terms of technology. But to, to talk about the end of Walkman, I mean, that, that was just heresy. So I think the first thing is you want to be able to admit that this is likely to happen. The second thing is you want to be very alert to the early warning signs that the growth trajectory of a business has slowed or has gone negative. Um, and in the early stages, if you're a product you know, line manager who is – vested in keeping a business going, there's a lot you can do to sort of hide the signals that things are starting to turn bad in the short run. So you can do efficiency measures. You can say, oh, well, you know, it was a bad quarter or, or it's the recession or whatever. Um, and so what ends up happening is the business is much weakened. And by the time you do decide to do something about it, it's a much less attractive sale or it's a much less attractive merger or however you decide you're going to get out. So you're better off taking a hard look at it early and asking the question, is this a growth business for us? Is this as attractive as our other opportunities? Um, or is this actually the fact that we're investing in this preventing us from accessing other attractive opportunities? So an interesting example there would be uh, Verizon uh, under Ivan Seidenberg, which made the, at the time, fairly drastic decision to exit physical phone books. Now, the physical phone book business was a very much cash-generating business. It was, it was a steady stream of income, and investors howled. They were like, how could you do this? This is a steady stream of income. We want these kind of businesses. And, uh, and yet they sold it off to a hedge fund, which was delighted for the non-correlated cash flows. Um, and they invested in things like Fios, and they invested in LTE networks, and uh, they, uh, they did all these kinds of things. So um, I think it's an interesting example of a company that said, this is still a healthy business, but it's not a business for us. Hmm. And I think that's an important distinction, especially, you know, we we tend to feel like this is, sort of ties in a, a little bit to this concept of the innovator's dilemma, where there's just sort of a pride, there's a, uh, an inability to let go of the things that made us what we are today, and yet, like in the case of Verizon, that's not what they were moving forward. And that can be a, a hard thing to realize. That it's time to transition maybe uh, in, in the concept, especially of uh, transient advantage. It sort of means, you know, where our old positioning was, where we, we used to be associated with, it's it's time to change all that. Um, I, like, I like the example of, and I believe you talk about them in the book, but the example of Netflix as somebody who sort of both did it, but did it poorly in a sense. Right, right. Right. Yeah, and in the book, what I try to lay out is what I would have done if I were Reed Hastings in transitioning customers from an old way of doing things to a new way. You know, the way he did it basically didn't create a satisfying experience for anybody, even the ones that were transitioning. <laughs> I mean, he raised prices and forced people to go to two queues and everything. And what I would recommend instead is you almost want to think of it like the reverse of the new product adoption cycle. 
So, you, you know, you'll have early exiters, and then you'll have later exiters, and then eventually have the mainstream exiters, and eventually you get everybody transitioned, and then when you're left with just a few people clinging onto the old model, you can deal with them on an almost case-by-case business. But it's, I think thinking about the sequencing and staging of exits is also important. Hmm. I think that's a good point. And, and, you know, one other thing I feel like is really important in this new um, thinking around uh, transient advantage, and I love that you end the book with this, is there's, there's a chapter on sort of what it means for leaders, and then the very last chapter is maybe you're not in a senior leadership position, maybe you don't actually uh, create the strategy, but what transient advantage can mean for anybody uh, in their career stages. T- tell me a little bit about what this new mindset means for people and how it changes the way they manage their careers. I think it's got huge implications for the way people manage their careers. Um, I think the first thing that you need to realize is that, you know, in many ways you're on your own, baby, right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, this sort of paternalistic corporation that was going to take you from, you know, level 15 to level 13 to level 10. I mean, that's still there. You know, there's still companies that do that. But I think for many people, they need to be prepared for a really different way of managing their careers. Um, So you need to be building skills, you need to be building networks, you need to make sure that you're continually educating yourself, Um, you need to be um, able to find new contacts who can get you to additional uh, connections. Um, So there's a lot that you need to do that you can think of it almost as permanent career management. Yeah, and I, I like the idea of you're you're on your own. Um, you know, the, the we've taught we've we've been he, we've been promoting this idea for decades now that you know the age of the thirty years and a golden watch uh, is no longer upon us. But I think it, it takes knowing on, on some level it to do career management. It takes knowing what the organization's moves are. You know, if your specialty is in and around phone books, then you almost need to know uh, and get a sense of when Verizon's getting ready to drop it before that mm-hmm. so you can make a transition yourself into a new area of specialty. Or, I guess, try and join up with the hedge fund in that case. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> now, the... Well, in the book, I do talk about how you can tell if something's in trouble. And, and I give you some questions that you can ask to see whether a particular business is, is beginning to show signs of eroding. Yeah, which is uh, there's actually a series of of different um, at, a lot of times at the very end um, around this new strategy playbook. There's a, a series of different questions and suggestions. It's a it's a wonderful read from that regard. But it actually makes me wonder. You know, you you talk about throughout the book about we're shifting from this mindset to this mindset, and there are if I if I understood if I follow your your tweets accurately enough, I mean there are over ten thousand copies of this book that have been shipped. So it's a it's a idea that's gaining steam. But I wonder what's the reaction been? What have you seen since it's come out? How willing are people to shift this mindset? I think the book has gotten a great reaction. Uh, there's a lot of people. The, I think the dominant reaction has been, "Oh, thank God, somebody finally put words to this." You know that. I think for a lot of people, there's been this sneaking sense of, you know, the way we framed our questions and the way we framed our strategy process isn't really fitting what's going on in the world. And so there's almost a sense of relief that that you know, if we can name it, we can start doing something about it. I think that's what people feel. The other thing I think that people are pleased by that this isn't a, a doom and gloom, you know, we're all going to get swallowed up by the earthquake kind of book. It's, it's trying to find companies and settings that have succeeded, even though the advantages are transient. And I think the book tries to give people some really good role models for how that can work. No, I I totally agree. I don't, I don't believe it's a it's a the sky is falling book. It's a wonderful uh, new playbook on on how to do that. And I um 
I actually, I have to tell you that I am one of those people. So I, I work in a university setting where the majority of other management professors and strategy people are very analytical, very pick your position, leverage until you can't leverage anymore, et cetera. And I kind of grew up in alongside more of the Mintzberg and emergent strategy idea. And so mm-hmm. I love, to me, this book kind of bridges the gap a little bit where it says, you know, analytics, understanding the market, all, all of that is important, but you can't hold that position forever. You have to know when to transition, when to take a learning, a lesson, maybe take the lesson quicker in the case of Netflix, Mm -hmm. uh, and when to pivot into a new advantage. And that's that sort of transient advantage mindset. Right, right. In fact, I was just on the phone with a group of people from a company this morning working on an innovation process, and they have the classic, you know, stage gate, so we're going to do the analysis, and is this a right, good thing worth going for, and then stage two is implementation, and I said to them, whoa, whoa, stop, 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 wait, um, why don't you guys go out and just take a couple of days, don't spend a lot of money, but go talk to some customers before you go right into implementation launch, and what they were doing was, was very traditional, it was, let's do all the analytics, let's put together the business plan, and it's, it's beautiful, right, beautiful PowerPoint with lots and lots of spreadsheets and things behind it, um, and then they go right from there into launch without having any in-market experience at all, and I just think that's so dangerous these days, because, you know, you spend a ton of money, and then you get into the market, and then you start learning, it makes no sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I have a, uh, one of, one of my, uh, close contacts we've been chatting uh, a lot in the past couple months is uh, Gianfranco Zakai from Continuum the innovation consultancy and you know he always talks about the uh, the wrong product at, at being being in the right place at the wrong time is awful but being in the uh, right place with the wrong product is even worse and so you oh, yeah. you have to be able to learn from uh, your customer base learn from ex- kind of externalizing your ideas and your products before you can really get a sense and and so you have to learn almost before launch or, or soft launch etc right. but the the old the old mindset yeah, I don't think it it works all that much anymore it, it really doesn't and I think what you're going to see is a bunch of of second order effects so You'll start to see design, for example, becoming something that gets introduced much earlier in the process of manufacturing than it has been classically. You'll start to see um, different disciplines coming together now. So increasingly what we're seeing is customers are looking for complete experiences and total solutions rather than just throw a product over the transom. So that has big implications for how well your manufacturing people, your designers, your supply chain people, how they all work together. So I think one of the things we're, we're probably going to be looking at is, is a real reformulation of the traditional silos that people operated in. Oh, absolutely. And and it starts with uh, understanding that new new mindset, building a new playbook. And the end of Competitive Advantage is wonderful that, for that. But I want to transition a little bit, if it's okay, from the book uh, to you and ask you a couple questions. Sure. Um, what are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? I am actually reading, this is interesting you asked me this, because I picked this book up at the AOM. I'm reading a book called A Year Up. Uh, and the subtitle is Helping Young Adults Move from Poverty to Professional Careers in a Single Year. And the reason I'm reading it is I'm very intrigued at this individual implications because one of the real challenges, I think, of the transient advantage economy is it's increasingly creating real winners and also real losers. So if you're talented and highly skilled and have a great network and, you know, have um, – uh, properties that are in demand, you're going to get paid more than ever in history for exercising those on the behalf of some company. Um, on the other hand, if you're kind of fungible, your degrees from a medium or lower uh, elite school, you 
don't have any particularly unique skills, um, the evidence is showing that companies are willing to pay those kind of people less and less, and that a lot of automation is being applied to getting rid of the jobs that they used to do. So, you know, things like um, reading legal documents to pick out certain words, well, a computer can do that today. Um, and so one of the challenges I'm really worried about is how do we create a society where everybody gets to participate in a way that is commensurate with their talents without you know, artificially excluding a whole bunch of people because they just didn't happen to be part of the right networks or be in the right place at the right time. So this book talks about an, an entrepreneur who's uh, and a banker who's created this program called Year Up where he takes people that are really left out of society and puts them through a rigorous training and induction process leading to many of them finding jobs. So I'm hoping to see if perhaps there's some solutions there to address this problem. Yeah, no, that's a that's a fascinating uh, concept. And to me, you know, it kind of when you first said a year up, my mind went immediately to that kind of uh, gap year that you see a lot of people right, right, talking right. about now. But I actually feel like it's more. I was just reading a story about an individual that did a uh, called it a DIY MBA, where he basically used some some contacts and set up twelve. Um, preceptorships or sort of internships for himself throughout uh, uh -huh. one, one every single month for a right. solid year to get all these different experiences and all these different industries. And I just think, uh -huh. you know, what, a, what an interesting story of taking a year and sort of diverting from the normal path, right? This uh -huh. is someone who didn't have an elite um, education, so he had, to, he had to do something to stand out in a sense. What was that called? Uh, I, I honestly, I don't, don't remember. A DIY MBA? Yeah, uh -huh. he called it a DIY MBA. I don't remember the article. I'll have to go back and look, look through it. It was one of those kind of little snippets on the side of a, right, of a longer uh -huh. article. And I just thought, uh -huh. wow, that's what a fascinating concept. But it really is, and I think as we, we collectively, as our institutions now push the responsibility for individual development onto people, uh, Thomas Friedman from the New York Times famously called it the, uh, the 401k life, you know, that just as companies used to take on responsibility for your pension and your health care and your education and a whole bunch of other things, increasingly what they're doing is putting the risk and the cost of those things more onto the backs of their employees. I mean, if you think about something like a 401k plan, it was never designed to be the primary savings vehicle for retirement, never. I mean, that was not the original design, but what happened to companies was they said, wait a minute, this we can, we can limit our risk, we can limit our cost, and as the defined benefit uh, pension plans you know, went the way of the dinosaurs, these things now became the primary saving vehicles. Well, we know people are terrible at thinking about their financial futures, by and large. Uh, and so, you know, this is creating really big uh, consequences for a society, which I don't know are very healthy. So one of the things I'd like to do as part of my next project is really think about what some of the individual um, challenges are and how we can start to address them. And one of the things that um, I would observe as I look at the literature, you know, a lot of the literature that looks at that question ends up with huge institutional changes. So we've got to completely reform education. We've got to completely reform the way people save. We've got to completely reform um, health care and whatever. And the trouble is those kinds of huge, huge changes, uh, you know, it's going to be generations before that happens. So I really think we need things people can take control of themselves and actions people can take themselves. And that's what I'd like to really understand next. Yeah, you know, that's that's quite ironic because the second question I, I was going to ask you is uh, what's next for you? What's on the horizon? What are you uh, looking at? You know, the end of competitive advantage is by no means fully launched. Um, right. <laughs> it's, it's only it's only getting started. But I know, you know, with how, how long it takes to bring a book out, I know sometimes you already have that. Well, that's that's the thing I'm looking at for the next book. And is that that sort of individualism or? Well, I've got two, two streams, actually, that I want to work on that will probably result in book projects. So the individual side is the first one, which is 
and what can people do themselves to, to help themselves clamber out of this mess if they're in a mess or take advantage of it if they're not. Um, the second stream is um, really digging into the concept in the book that I call arenas. And um, in traditional strategy, the most significant analytical effort typically went into analyzing your industry, right? So there was a huge amount of effort put on things like uh, market share and industry ranking, and am I one of the top three competitors, and what are their competitive moves likely to be? Well, in today's environment, what increasingly I'm seeing is we need to compete for arenas. And what's an arena? An arena is like a pot of resources which you contest uh, by your various offers uh, in a specific place, uh, in a specific place and time. So let me give an example. In the United States, um, there was a reporter for the Journal, the Wall Street Journal, who did a study looking at the growth rates of various categories of goods, and looking at it from 2007 when the iPhone was introduced to 2012 when he wrote his article. And what he found was that spending on household spending on telecommunications and smartphones particularly was up by about 12%. What was down, uh, textiles, so clothing, um, restaurant eating, uh, apparel, uh, automotive, all those things were down. And so households were individually shifting their pot of disposable money into telecommunications and out of these other areas. So if you really want to think about your competitive strategy, you need to know that. You know, you can't be a car company and sit there thinking, oh, well, I just have to be better than other car companies. You, can, you have to be a car company and think, I'm going to be a more compelling place for people to spend their money than telecommunications. I mean, that's a different – you would reframe the question really differently. Another more recent example is uh, there was a piece in um, – I think it was in the New York Times talking about um, standalone digital cameras, you know, the autofocus digital cameras. Their industry is imploding. I mean, the, the sales, I forget the numbers, but the sales of those were down by like 50% um, because nobody buys a camera anymore. We all take pictures with our phones. Oh, yeah, no. And, you know, and cameras aren't connected to the Internet. And so the main picture-taking activity today is you take a picture and then you post it someplace. <laughs> well, right. if the camera can't do half of that function, what good is it? Yeah, no, I actually, I remember I was at a, at a graduation like maybe three months ago and someone handed me a digital camera and I just kind of looked at it, and, you know, half jokingly, I just kind of looked at it and said, how do you make a phone call with this? <laughs> oh, that's cute. <laughs> that's great. So anyway, the, the, the strategy stream, um, which I don't want to lose, I, I think it's important to keep working on that, is going to be really looking at how would you develop a strategy which, which can adopt this idea of arenas and then develop a you know, competitive strategy accordingly. Uh, because I think that's going to be really important um, for strategy going forward. And so uh, I'm working on it with a colleague, uh, and we're tentatively thinking of the project as um, how do you de decide what, when's the right time, what's the right place, and what's the right move to make. No, it sounds absolutely fascinating, and, and you know, it's more evidence in the idea that the, the, the landscape has shifted, which means the playbook needs to shift, and the, the first attempt to describe that um, is the end of competitive advantage. So we want to encourage our, our readers to pick up the, the end of competitive advantage if you want to figure out how to keep your strategy moving as fast as business is moving, or if, if your own career moving as quickly as the pace of business is moving and changing. I encourage you to check out the end of uh, competitive advantage. It's a fascinating read um, on how the mindset around strategy it needs to change and how the playbook needs to change. Uh, Rita, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab today. Thanks. It's a pleasure. And also, uh, there are a lot of resources on my website, which is very creatively called uh, readamagraph.com, which uh, <laughs> your, your listeners are, are very welcome to come visit. 
Yeah, awesome. You can also you can also find me on Twitter at RG McGrath. Yes, and she, and I should say that uh, for two years running now, she has been one of our top professors on Twitter. Um, always very active, a fascinating person to follow. So please follow her. In addition to getting a, picking up a copy of the book, well, Rita, thank you so much again for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Oh, it's a pleasure. 